0: good morning friends today's message welcome to the war my text today genesis 14 and hebrews 7. we live in a world at war and ever since satan attempted to overthrow god and you can read about that in isaiah 14 a war has been raging in the universe it's a war between light and darkness good and evil god and satan angels and de- demons so yes welcome to the battle fellow soldiers It's time to put on the whole armor of God and stand against every attack of our enemy. Our weapons are not earthly, but spiritual, meant for pulling down of strongholds. Our adversary is cruel and cunning, with many weapons and many soldiers ready to do his bidding. This morning, the battle rages. If we don't see it or hear it, it's only because the battle is being fought in the spiritual realm. And that's why this is not primarily a political issue. We are to love these people, honor them, and pray for them, even while we disagree with some things they say and do. In other words, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, and we don't seek a political victory. Now, with that just as a brief introduction, we're going to turn to Genesis 14, first of all. And immediately, it grabs our attention because this chapter records the first battle in the Bible. This ancient story, which may at first seem to have no relevance to us, actually contains the basic principles of spiritual warfare. It tells us how to fight and how to win, it reveals Satan's diabolical strategy, and it teaches us crucial truths we need to know. Well, let's start back with Abraham rescuing Lot in Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 17. Now, this chapter falls into two parts. The first 16 verses go into great detail describing the first war in the Bible. Now, just let me briefly summarize what they say. In the days of Abraham, five pagan kings lived near the southern end of the Dead Sea. Two of the kings ruled over the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And by the way, whenever you see those two cities mentioned in the Bible, they're always connected with gross moral evil. Now, by the time of the New Testament, they come to symbolize the moral evil of this world. Now, those five pagan kings were conquered by four pagan kings from the East. For 12 years, the five kings paid tribute to the four kings. In the thirteenth year, they rebelled, refused to pay, which caused the four four kings to declare war against them. Now, in telling this story, I've emphasized that all of the kings involved were pagan. That's important because when the pagans fight each other, there is normally no reason for God's people to get involved. Now, Abraham, who's living in Canaan, at first has no reason to care one way or another. As they say in Texas and even in Nebraska, we don't have a dog in that fight. But things changed when he learned that his nephew Lot had been taken captive when Sodom, where he was living, was overrun by the kings from the east. So now Abraham faces a moral crisis. What should he do about Lot? Well, there were at least two reasons for Abraham not to get involved. First of all, it was not his fight. And second of all, Lot had brought this problem on himself. Now the second point was as particular value because Lot has foolishly chosen the well-watered plains while leaving the scrubland to his uncle but just as one wrong decision soon leads to another at first he's merely living in Sodom and soon he's living in Sodom now no doubt Lot justified living in the midst of moral compromise by saying things like you know I'm strong enough or this isn't going to affect me or oh maybe we'll be a light in the midst of darkness Now, unfortunately, moral compromise never leads to anything good. And in this case, it led to Lot's capture by the four pagan kings. Now, Genesis 14, verses 13 to 16 tell us how Abraham responded when he heard the news. He led 318 trained fighters from his own household. And leading a daring nighttime raid, his tiny band routed the four pagan armies and chased them north of Damascus. And in the process, he recovered enormous booty and rescued Lot and his family. Now, from this story, we can deduce four principles of spiritual warfare. First of all, the danger of compromise. Now, if Lot had not been in Sodom in the first place, Abraham would have never had to rescue him. When will we learn that nothing good comes from compromising our moral values? See, every time we try to set aside our Christian values in order to have a good relationship with the world, we are often the ones who end up suffering for it. Second of all is the loyalty of love. Here we see Abraham risking his own life in order to save his wayward nephew. Sometimes love will cause us to do things that seem pretty odd to outsiders. We may have to extend our resources in ways we did not expect. And tough love? Yeah. But what about risky love? As C.S. Lewis has written, Love anything and you risk having your heart broken. The only way to spare yourself the pain is to live inside a casket cut off from everyone and everything. See, love doesn't just sit there and go... Well, he's getting what he deserves. No, nope. love cares enough to get involved, even at the risk of being hurt. And third, the importance of preparation. When the moment came, Abraham could instantly call for 318 trained men. Now, who trained him? I think Abraham did. They were his personal Delta Force, his SEAL team, ready to go into battle on a moment's notice. The same holds true in our spiritual warfare. Since we never know where Satan will attack next, we must be ready to respond at a moment's notice. That means being prayed up, studied up, with our armor on and with the sword of the Spirit in our hands. It means being sober at all times, watching for the fiery darts of the enemy. Sleeping soldiers will soon be dead soldiers. And fourth is the courage to fight. And here we see Abraham's courage at its finest. He didn't hesitate to go into battle, even against a much larger force. He had the courage to fight because he knew his cause was just. In this, he models for us the true meaning of Ephesians 6.12. Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. During the Civil War, the soldiers would often sing, Praise the Lord, and pass the ammunition. I mean, such should be a rallying cry for every Christian soldier. Now, as we move into the second half of Genesis 14, one battle is over, but another one is about to begin. As Abraham is returning home, two kings come to meet him, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Now, these two men could hardly be more different. Bera, king of Sodom, rules over the most vile, perverse, morally corrupt city in the world, He represents the ultimate end of mankind as it turns away from God. Now, the king of Salem is a mysterious man named Melchizedek. Verse 18 tells us that he was the king of Salem, a reference to Jerusalem, the city of peace. But his name in Hebrew means king of righteousness, a priest of God most high. So here is a Gentile king who somehow has come to know the one true God. The particular name for God used here is El Elyon, the Most High God. It refers to the God above all other gods, the supreme ruler and Lord of all the universe. He's the God who reigns far above the false God of the pagans. Now, somehow Melchizedek has come to know this God and has become his priest even while serving as the king of Jerusalem. And all of this is rather mysterious to us, and there are a lot of questions that remain unanswered. But of greatest interest are the words in this mysterious Melchizedek as he talks to Abraham in verses 19 and 20. He says, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed by God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Melchizedek does two things for Abraham. One, he blesses him in the name of the Lord, and two, he reminds him of the true source of his amazing victory. It's as if he's saying, Abraham, how do you think you managed to defeat those four armies? Did you think it was your brilliant strategy, military strategy? Forget it. You took that tiny handful and you defeated a much larger army only because God himself gave you the victory. He delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, at this crucial moment, the king of Sodom suddenly speaks up with what seems to be a very tempting offer. He says to Abraham, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. He's tempting Abraham to keep the spoils of victory, and no doubt this meant a chance to become super rich, you know, the Bill Gates or the Warren Buffett of his day. But before we go any further, let's remember that Abraham had the right to keep the spoils. After all, he's the one who risked his own life to rescue Lot. We've all heard it said, to the victor go the spoils. No one could criticize him for saying yes to such an offer. He might even rationalize it by arguing that accepting the spoils would allow him to give even more to God. But he didn't. He just said no. He turned down the king of Sodom without even batting an eyelash. No long wait, no give me some time to pray about it, no doubts, no inner hesitation. Listen to his answers to the king of Sodom in verses 22 and 23. I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. You see, Abraham knew all about Sodom, the kind of people who lived there and what kind of sin took place there. He wanted nothing to do with it because he had sworn an oath to God. He had the moral courage to say no, even when others might have said yes. So why didn't Abraham keep the spoils of war? Well, because they came from an evil source, because he wanted no alliance with Sodom because he knew that God was enough, and because he wanted Sodom to get no credit whatsoever, because he wanted God to get all of the victory. Now, this little episode leads me to suggest three characteristics of victorious faith. The first of these is in humility, seen in the fact that Abraham voluntarily offered a tithe to Melchizedek in verse 20. As Hebrews 7 points out, you only make an offering to someone you regard as greater than yourself. And though even though he had just won an impressive victory, Abraham realized that Melchizedek was greater than he was, and so he offered his one-tenth of all everything he had taken in battle. The second principle is generosity, seen in the fact that while Abraham would take nothing for himself, he offered part of the spoils to the men <clears throat> who were with him. And the third principle is purity, seen in the fact that Abraham would not compromise his values because he knew that the king of Sodom in offering the spoils was like a Washington lobbyist trying to buy influence with dirty money. Now, when you stand back and look at Genesis 14 in perspective, you realize that there are really two battles here, one between Abraham and the pagan kings and the other between Abraham's godly conscience and the pull of moral compromise. This ancient story forces us to confront some very penetrating questions. Is God enough for you? Or do you also need what the world has to offer? Well, it's almost time to wrap up the message before, it. but before I do, let me draw four, four principles that stand out from Genesis 14. One, there will be continual conflict in the Christian life. In other words, friends, no one ever arrives. If Romans 7 teaches us anything, it is that even the best Christians will struggle earnestly with sin till the day they die. I mean, if Paul had a fight with sin, so will you and so will I. And second, great temptation often comes after a great victory. And that's precisely what happened to Abraham. The king of Sodom came to him after his great victory. The same will often happen to us. Have you ever had a great victory, for example, lately? Seen a marvelous answer to prayer, won a major battle, finished a big project, accomplished a personal goal, or passed an important test? If so, I'm just going to say, watch out. Sometimes temptation comes in the afterglow of a great victory. And third, as we grow, we will continually be tested regarding our ultimate choice in life. Abraham had to decide whether God was enough or if he also needed the treasures of Sodom. So don't be surprised if you're tested this week. And fourth, only when you glimpse the greatness of God will you have the strength to withstand temptation. That's what happened to Abraham. It was only because he had lifted his hand to God Most High that he had the inner strength to resist the king of Sodom. Now, some of us spend too much time worrying about temptation when we ought to spend more time contemplating the Lord. When your God is big enough, temptation will be small enough that you can win the battle. Now, I've got two more questions to ask, and then we're done. And question number one is, I thought this sermon was about Hebrews. You have not yet mentioned it. And question number two, by the way, who is this Melchizedek guy? Now, it may interest you to know that he is mentioned just three times in the Bible. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and in the book of, you guessed it, Hebrews. In fact, Hebrews 7 tells us more about him than Genesis 14 does. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, first of all, we learn from Hebrews 7 that he was... Uh, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now, the key phrase in verse 3, Melchizedek is like the Son of God. Now, some people have wondered if Melchizedek actually was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, but that's necessary um, to, to this passage. The point is, just as Melchizedek has no recorded genealogy, meaning we don't know where he was born or when he died and thus remains a priest forever because no one can pr- prove that Melchizedek ever died. Jesus remains also, also remains a priest forever because we know he died but then rose from the dead and remains alive in heaven to this very hour. And like Melchizedek, Jesus is both a king having the authority to help us and a priest having a heart that's sympathetic to our needs. And here the writer's conclusion of the matter in Hebrews 7.25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. You see, friends, everything hinges on he always lives. If Jesus is dead, we have no hope and our faith is in vain. But if Jesus is alive, then he is able to save us completely. And the word means both completely and forget, forever. The King James Version uses the phrase, to the uttermost. That leads me to three crucial conclusions. One, because Jesus is alive, our salvation is completely sure and eternally secure. Two, because Jesus is alive, our needs completely met today, tomorrow, and forever. And three, because Jesus is alive, our ultimate victory is guaranteed. It has been said that the darker the night, the brighter the light, the greater the test, the greatest... Uh, the opportunity for seeing God's power at work. Now, I know that these are difficult days for all of us. I mean, Satan attacks us on many levels. And the way he attacks me may not be the way he attacks you. But I do know what he wants to do. He wants to divide us, discourage us, and defeat us. In the day of battle, you only have two options. You can fight or flee. Abraham was willing to fight, and that's why he won the victory. Our only hope is to turn our eyes to Jesus. Hebrews 12.1 exhorts us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He faced the same battle, and because of it, he went to the cross. When you and I grow weary, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Do not look to sinful men or fallible leaders, but focus on Jesus and him alone. He has not brought us this far to cause us to fail. He will give us the strength to keep on going and will bring us safely home at the end. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion. God bless.